0: Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas with Life Over Coffee. You can find us in our coffee shop at lifeovercoffee.com. I want to spend the next few minutes working through several questions that have been sent into our ministry. We get questions all the time, and many of them actually have universal application, and so everyone will benefit from them. And so I asked my wife, Lucia, of 27 years, if she would join me for this episode, because some of the questions actually apply to her And so we want to talk about marriage, conflict, communication, dating, working through confession, forgiveness, and a number of other things. By the way, if you want to send in questions for me or for us to answer, you're welcome to do that. Just go to the footer of any page on our website at lifeovercoffee.com, and there is a Get In Touch link. And if you would click on that, you can ask your question, and we would love to serve you if possible. So please feel free to ask us Anything that you wish. Now, for those of you who underwrite our ministry, you support us on a monthly or annual basis. You know that we do have a private forum and we're talking all the time. I mean, virtually every day we're interacting with our supporting community. But that only happens behind the paywall for those who support our ministry. But we want to serve everyone. And so there are questions that come from folks who don't support, can't support. And we're not asking you to do that. But we do want to serve you. And we want you to know that you can send in your questions uh, also. And so I have 19 of them that I'm going to work through. And again, there's a random order here. They are eclectic, uh, but I trust that they will serve you as we move through them. And so the first question is, what is the difference between self-sufficiency and self-reliance? I use that term a lot because self-sufficiency, self-reliance, first of all, they are synonyms. They mean the same thing. Now, The reason that I interchange or use words synonymously is because it really helps to explain a point that you are trying to make. Jesus, of course, was a master at this as He stacked words to try to communicate a point. Love the Lord God with all your soul, heart, mind, and strength. I mean, there's some similarity in the point that He's trying to make there, and sometimes in my with my communication style, I will use words synonymously to help uh, make that point. And of course, self-reliance and self-sufficiency, that is a cornerstone to our teaching in our ministry. Did you know that self-reliance is our number one problem as far as our relationship with God? What self-reliance or self-sufficiency means is I am going to trust myself rather than trust God. And so I'm going to lean to my own understanding rather than the Lord's. One of the ways of communicating that is the terminology self-sufficiency or self-reliance. In the Garden of Eden at the very beginning, chapter 3 of Genesis, verse number six when uh, Satan presented another option and of course Adam and Eve took that option and it was at that point at their, at that intersection in human history where we now have two options we can either trust ourselves lean to our own understanding or we can trust God Prior to Genesis 3-6, there was only one option, and that was to trust God. Well, we live in a post-fallen, a a post-Genesis 3-6 world, and so we do have that struggle, that tension, and there are times in our lives where God's way... Uh, seems foolish, Uh, his strength seems like weakness, and the temptation is very strong to be self-sufficient or self-reliant. And so we talk about that a lot in our ministry, but as far as the question is, those two words mean basically the same thing. Now if you wanted to do a study, a deep dive on self-sufficiency, we have a ton of resources at lifeovercoffee.com, and all you'd have to do is just type the word self-sufficiency or self-reliance, either one, in the search feature in the top right-hand corner of our website, and you can do that deep dive and study that uh, that topic because it's significant to all of us. All right, so question number two, how did you meet your wife and and what would life be like without her? Well, let me answer the second part first. That is a hypothetical, and so I can't answer it. I I don't know what life would be uh, without her. I can tell you what life was like when we first met. I was I was eating hamburger helper and um, drink, drinking a lot of fresh uh, Freshka. Soda pop. Yeah, that's a, that's a soda pop, and so that's where I was. Some. 30 years ago when I met her, but I would assume that I would not be uh, still eating Hamburger Helper and drinking Fresca because we are fluid beings. And so I would have changed, progressed, evolved into something, I'm not sure what that would be. Canned ravioli. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe from <laughs> a Hamburger Helper to canned ravioli. and So I'm not sure where that would be, it's a hypothetical question, but I do appreciate it. The first part of the question is, how did you meet your wife? Uh, Well, that was July the 24th, 1994 at 1035 in the morning. And I know that all you husbands know the exact date that you met your wives and where you were. Uh, And and that's just something that we men tend to remember uh, very easily. Uh, But for me, uh, the reason I do remember it actually is because it was uh, Sunday school. It was on a Sunday morning. At uh, in a Sunday school class is where we met, and then after the Sunday school class, uh, we started talking to each other. We walked out to the gymnasium at the church building. We had um, orange juice and donuts, donuts or Krispy Kreme. Krispy Kreme uh, chatted very briefly, and then um, a week later, a Sunday night, we sat together uh, at the church meeting. Uh, the Sunday evening service. Uh, and then we went out to a, a place that doesn't exist anymore here in South Carolina. It's called Swinson's Ice Cream Parlor. Uh, and we, um, we had ice cream or something, soda, whatever. Uh, and that was our really first uh, long-form conversation that night. I was working third shift at a glue factory. And um, we talked for two or three hours, I would imagine. Uh, And it was during that conversation that I asked Lucia what she wanted to do with her life. And she said she wanted to uh, get married, uh, quit her job, and uh, be a stay-at-home mom. And uh, in my mind, I've only known her for a couple of weeks at that point. I'm like, yes, uh, this is the person that I want to spend the rest of my life with. Uh, I was not a serial dater, and neither was she. And, of course, when she said that, that pretty much fit all the criteria. And, of course, she was a Christian as well. Uh, And so then we went um, our third time, uh, we went and played putt-putt. And then uh, the next time we were together, we went to a a university uh, here in South Carolina called Furman University, and they have a beautiful campus. And we had a picnic, and it was uh, during uh, that time when I... Uh, shared with her that I had been married before and I have two children. Uh, And the reason I wanted her to know that is because I did not want her to um, fall in love with me, which was so easy to do, uh, without knowing the full story. And so uh, it was apparent. Again, we were not serial daters and Uh, there was some interest from both sides and so in all fairness to let her know uh, what she was getting herself into and so uh, i told her that and then uh, afterwards let her out at her home she was living with her parents uh, at the time and then she um, I, i said i would not call or whatever And then she came back uh, three days or so, something like that, and said she would like to continue to explore this relationship. And so that was pretty much um, the early first few weeks of our dating relationship, but it was July 24th, 1994. Question number three, what specific advice would you give introverts to maintaining relationships and making new ones to envelop people into your close sphere of influence. And so you're a shy person. What advice would you have to uh, meet people and then to bring them into your closer network of friends? That is a great question. Of course, I don't know what is meant here by the word introvert. Um, and so it could be a couple of possibilities. It, it could be someone that is just their personality is given uh, to shyness, that they're just not a talker. Now, that would be me. I, I am a historical introvert. Uh, people typically are surprised when they hear that from me because they only know me through uh, videos and podcasting, public speaking, writing, and so forth. And so I live in a communicative world. Uh, But this is me at this point in my life. This is not who I have always been. And so my personality is not given to communicating a lot. And by the way, if you were to meet Lucia and me, uh, on a regular basis, you would learn very quickly that Lucia is the social butterfly. Her personality in many ways is 180 degrees different from mine. Uh, She seems to be, I mean, do you get energized by talking? I mean, it it seems like it's not work. It's not work, okay, yeah. And for me, it is work. And so, you know, after I do this video, I'll probably need a nap. After I public speak, I need a nap. For me to talk is work, okay? Uh, But that has a lot to do with my personality. So there could be a personality issue going on here. Uh, And there, there could also be fear of man. Now, I have habitually struggled with fear of man my entire life, meaning being insecure. I won't get into all the reasons of why that is so, but that is also part of my shaping influence. And so one of the things that you have to determine is my personality type. Just I'm just not a natural talker. I prefer to listen. By the way, that's one of the reasons I've, I've done pretty well in counseling because I do listen well. Uh, and, and then you have to ask, is this a sin issue like fear of man? And so there is repentance involved if it's fear of man. By the way, we do have a course at LifeOverCoffee.com, it's a topical course that you could take online about how to overcome the fear of man. As far as a, an introvert personality issue is concerned, uh, I had to come to terms with the gospel. The gospel is about going. The Great Commission is to go and to make disciples. Christ was our first missionary, and so he came from his place to our place so that we could be redeemed. And so after I became a Christian, I had to negotiate with what it meant uh, to be a Christian and to honor God, to glorify him. And, of course, that means that, that i have to push myself beyond my comfort zone by the way that also ties into what i was saying earlier about self-reliance if i lean to my old paths my comfortable paths but lean to my own understanding well obviously i'm going to isolate and retreat but as a christian being born again there is a new life and i need to step into it and so there's a responsibility On me to to put myself in a position to where I am communicating now that's a work in progress of course where I am today is a far cry from where I was uh, when we first dated started dating and right when we got married I told Lucia uh, uh, that you'll have to be in charge of the the social calendar uh, because if I am we won't go anywhere Uh, but then I also told her that when we do go somewhere and and socialize or Uh, have hospitality uh, that I'll be the knot on the log uh, in the other room because it's just something that I'm not comfortable with. It's not something that I have done historically. And so again, that has been a work in progress. And so if you're struggling as an introvert, uh, The main thing I would tell you is that whatever repentance is involved, uh, just walk out repentance. Uh, If it's fear of man, God help me to overcome fear of man. Uh, If it's a personality thing where your temptation is to retreat, I want you to think about the gospel. And again, the gospel is always going into other people's lives. The two great laws, of course, the two great commandments are to love God and love others. And you can't do that by isolating Right, number three, what specific, uh, uh, I'm sorry, number four, uh, you said um, feelings come from thoughts, but that translates differently from person to person. Is there a biblical reason or an example for everyone to try to achieve an ideal balance of showing more or less emotion? Is it a sin to show different amounts of emotion? So what I was saying there uh, what they were listing in, in some context is that our feelings respond to our thoughts, and so whatever our thoughts are, uh, it's going to create an emotion or or a feeling. If someone that were to put a, a gun in your face, you're going to have a certain kind of emotion or emotions. Um, our, our emotions are not. Our emotions are. Our emotions work perfectly fine. Uh, It's our thoughts that control our emotions. And so this person says, you said feelings come from thoughts, but that's different from person to person. Is there an ideal balance uh, of showing more or less emotion? There's not really a balance. Each person would be different. Uh, Like I was talking about earlier, some people are more talkative. Some people will be more emotive. Some people are more reserved and they're less emotive. And so you really want to step into and be uh, the person that God has made you to be, whatever that is. Uh, Lucia shows a lot of emotion. I tend to have a game face all the time. I have one face for all seasons uh, Lucia has many faces for for all kinds of uh, contexts and opportunities. And so we don't want to be someone else. We want to be the person that God has made us to be. But the question that we have to ask, uh, are we maturing? Are we growing into our unique version of Christ's likeness? And we want to make sure that we're not uh, sinning, uh, that... I am not going to show any emotion. And so a husband that would, uh, not would, would let's say, uh, do the silent treatment to his wife, uh, that, is, that is sinning. And so we want to make sure that we are maturing and always progressing toward likeness, though there will be a unique iteration of that with each person. Number five, many arguments with older couples seem to be and you, you can take this one. See, we, as, uh, the, the order here is eclectic, and it looks like those first four were directed right to me, but I do want Lucia, uh, I want you to hear from her, so I, let me stop at this point. Uh, many arguments with older couples seem to be recurring shortcomings or sins, and so when they get our age, it's like, man, we're still doing the same stuff over and over again. How do you fight the discouragement from not growing, uh, from not growing in sanctification as those frequent sins do not disappear? I guess this can be individually as or as a couple, and so Lucia, uh, things that you struggle with habitually, and then the things, let's say, that I struggle with, that we struggle with uh, as far as a couple is concerned. The question is, how do you fight discouragement? Because of those recurring patterns in our lives,
1: and I, most of that is just knowing where what the trajectory is going to be like. So, if you know that your spouse is married and you're both heading towards God, and any arguments you've had along the way that you're confessing and repenting sin and growing, then that discouragement should be very minimal to none. That you should know, okay, we're gonna there's gonna be sin all the time. So if you're ever thinking that there's going to be a perfect marriage, the, you know, the prince charming castle, nothing going wrong, then you're just setting yourself up for that because that's very unrealistic and it's, it's not going to happen. And that would be discouraging. So I think when you come to the realization that there's going to be sin and it could surprise you and it could come out of nowhere, you could think you've got an issue resolved and taken care of that, you know, I think Satan jumps in at those moments to say, Oh no, you don't. And here's some discouragement, but It's just a continual part of going and, from my standpoint, if we're in an argument, taking my part of the sin and being able to confess that, ask for repentance. Rick has been faithful to do that, to repent of his sin and to know that we both love Jesus and we're working towards that. So it's part of the long-term goal of knowing that there's always going to be sin around. How are you going to handle it? Do you have a plan to work through that? Are you talking about the issues after an an argument, so when you're not angry with each other, that after repentance has happened, that you can go back and, you know, work through and say, okay, what happened? Why did this just, you know, show up? Why are we, why was either one of us discouraged? And are we still pressing forward in that way that there's not really any discouragement that should be there as far as an overlaying, you know, main theme of a marriage?
0: So the question is, uh, when when Paul was preaching all night and Eutychus fell out the window, why did he fall out?
1: He had more hanging out than he was hanging in.
0: Yes, it's a physics question. Why did Eutychus fall out the window? It's because he had more hanging out than hanging in. And that is the uh, straightforward, obvious answer. Uh, it reminded me of what she was saying earlier, that the trajectory of the individual in the marriage or the trajectory of the couple do we have more hanging out or hanging in? Meaning, are we leaning into Christ or are we moving away from Christ? If an individual or a couple is moving toward Christ and they have a recurring pattern in their life, uh, well, then, that should bring hope that that we'll continue to evolve in our progressive sanctification. We will continue to mature, and so one of the questions what she was saying, do you have more hanging out or hanging in? And I trust that your marriage is you got more hanging in that you're you're leaning into Christ. Uh, If not, then, well, you might want to talk to someone and get some help because there is something going on uh, that's created a snag. If the gap between you and Christ is widening, then that is a problem. And then the other thing, of course, is a a sin plan, Uh, having a way to deal with those sins when they happen, not just sweeping them under the rug. The rug tends to get lumpy uh, after a while
1: then you're tripping and you get discouraged
0: yeah you keep tripping over the yeah we decided to just take all the rubs Gosh,
1: yeah. now we just have dust piles
0: <laughs> yeah just piles we don't. all right so this by the way this is episode 481 at lifeovercoffee.com the title of it is rick and lucia answering your questions i say that because there is a podcast there of what we're doing here there's also a video there but also the questions are here too. If you want uh, these questions in a transcript, you can get them at episode 481 at lifeovercoffee.com. All right, so let's talk about number six. Um, Can you elaborate on the concept of being a restorative friend? Is that something that happens providentially or is it wise to be intentional? Uh, The big word here is intentional, and that is the answer. If you want to be a restorative friend, uh, if you want to be part of God's restoration team, uh, in in Galatians 6.1, it says, you who are spiritual, you restore uh, that person in a spirit of gentleness, that person who is caught. And so that's where this word restorative friend is concerned. And so The implication from that text is very clear uh, that God could restore us without us, but he has chosen to use us, the agency of humanity, uh, to cooperate with him. And that's why I say, do you want to be part of God's restoration team? He wants to use us. Nathan, for example, in the Old Testament was cooperating with God to restore David as he went and confronted David about his sin. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. Of course, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, it says, stir one another up to loving good deeds. And so the question is, could you elaborate on the concept of being a restorative friend? Is it something that happens providentially or is it wise to be intentional? By the way, it can happen providentially uh, but if you're not paying attention, if you're not intentional, the things that God brings before your path, uh, then they can just move on by you and you not step into that moment. And so whether you are, you can make providence happen by being intentional or as God brings things to you, again, you want to be intentional. And so we always want to be looking out over the periphery The landscape of our lives, and and who is this person that I can go meet, that I can give a word to, that I I can help encourage in some way. And so we want to be intentional. God will providentially bring people by, uh, but those two things work hand in hand providential and uh, being intentional. If we have a heart of intentionality, uh, business will pick up and God will providentially put us in places of helping people when do you address or confront someone lost in anger? And so, uh, Lucia, I'll let you handle this since you have uh, a lot of experience in confronting someone lost in anger.
1: Well, that really depends upon on how they're going to re- respond in a sense. I mean, you don't want to wait for the response, but if you know someone's really angered and you're going to go and try to bring truth to them and try to help lead them towards repentance and they are lost in the heat of the moment and the motions raging. None of that's going to be heard. It could even make it worse. So you kind of have to know, you know, whether it's a spouse, whether it's children, whether it's a friend, I wouldn't put it off in depth definitely in wait weeks before you address the situation. But for us, when it happens within inside of an argument, there's usually, you know, a few hours maybe in there that goes through and, and part of that time I look at myself and say, okay, what what was my part in this what how did i contribute to this moment or situation or whatever happened where where can i go and myself repent for my part in it you know rick will receive that he may or may not be able to at that point take his part and be able to repent from it but he's been very faithful and god's worked within him to be able to come back and we've been able to clean up those messes he's been able to repent But that doesn't always happen, you know, right after a blow up or right after sharp words or, you know, even silence. There's that doesn't always happen. So it's really knowing your spouse, your children, your friends and what that looks like. And then after that part, you know, talking through like, okay, what could I have done better? You know, were you ready to hear? Did I wait too long? You know, part of those things of of finding out when you're not in an angry moment of how can you better serve the person that you're working on restoration with
0: yeah and uh that also ties into one of our mentors uh kenny rogers uh, he says you need to uh know when to hold him know, know when to fold them, know when to fold them. Uh-huh. uh and, and so uh, t- to bring that within a biblical framework which we need to do Sorry, here it's important <laughs> uh that means um th- there has to be a pneumatos uh involved here uh walking in the spirit being pneumatic Uh, because each situation is different, and so the responses will be different depending on the situation. Of course, as we were talking earlier, uh, if you know your spouse, and we'll put it within a couple construct here, if you know that your spouse is leaning in, they have more hanging in than hanging out, uh, that should give you hope and keep you from despairing that there will be a point in the future, hopefully the near future, where uh, the Spirit of God will work in their heart, and you can deal with with that anger uh, issue. The question is when do you address or confront someone lost in anger? I do want to mention another uh, aspect or another way of thinking about confronting because when we hear that word uh, it, it sounds uh, you know strong and courageous which it is where you're getting in front of them and you are confronting them. but there's another way of doing that as well And I, I've said before that you know Lucia has this sanctified silent treatment and what she does uh, it really ties into first Peter 3 uh, starting at verse number one where uh, you you are a, a quiet and gentle spirit. Uh, Lucia has a phenomenal ability to not say anything uh, when I am angry at her and I will tell you uh, that what that does uh, because I'd rather for her to you you know be as aggravating as I am and then we could we could really get into it but she doesn't but what that does is that it it opens up uh, this vacuum where the Spirit of God just comes in and convicts and uh, when she does that I, I I really dislike it a lot. Gives Um, you the one-two punch. (laughs) What's that?
1: The Spirit gives you the one-two punch. Yeah. Uh, and,
0: And so that is confronting, too. And so that's why you really have to think about, you know, is the couple leaning into Christ? Are they maturing and growing or not? Uh, what works, you know, best for, uh, you know, the spouse at hand. Lucia has learned that this, her sanctified silent treatment, as I uh, call it, is a powerful tool. But then there's other times when uh, she verbally confronts me as well. And so there are many ways of of doing it. And so I trust that that was uh, helpful. Number eight, how do we handle the mess of others without internalizing it being grieved by the weight of others' burdens to the point of discouragement." Now, uh, if you are uh, grieved by the weight of others at the place of discouragement, you do have to ask yourself uh, some questions. One of those would be, are you trying too hard? The temptation with caring people is to to overcare, to become a mini-messiah. In 1 Corinthians 3.6, it says, you know, Apollos watered and Paul planted, but God gave the increase. And we really have to come to a full stop at the end of watering and planting. We can't cross over into giving the increase uh, because that is God's job to bring the growth. But caring people tend to care or to overcare. They tend to care too much. That This particularly happens uh, with parents uh, that we can be so discouraged, and we're, we're really becoming a mini-Messiah. And so one of the questions that you have to ask, have I crossed the line from watering and planting to trying to bring the growth as well? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, it says that God will grant repentance. That is not our job to bring repentance to an individual. That is what the Lord does now the other thing that you have to uh, ask as well particularly those who are in uh, the counseling world where they do it more professionally uh, they do it uh, more formalized uh, we train people to do biblical counseling at lifeovercoffee.com we have our mastermind program which is a full fully online self-paced program and one of the things that I talk to our students about that if you are planning on or if you have aspirations of being a formalized biblical counselor, not just a a regular friend doing discipleship, doing life over coffee, but if you're going into a more intense field of formalized biblical counseling, uh, you have to ask yourself, uh, do I have a sturdy soul? Do I have that internal constitution to be able to listen to these bad stories all the time? Uh, Because every story is difficult, every story is sad, every story has levels of complexity. And if you do that regularly, week in and week out, you really have to have what I call a sturdy soul to be able to do that. And so you want to make sure that you're not putting yourself in a a place where you really just, that is not your skill set. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It just means that maybe there's another calling on your life than this formalized biblical Uh, counseling uh, profession that you uh, want to go into. And so those are two things to consider. Am I over-caring? And then do I have the soul constitution to be able to hear uh, difficult stories? Number nine, uh, how does one move from scriptural knowledge to scriptural application and soul care? Uh, How do we go from uh, learning about the Bible and then applying it scriptural application uh, to disciple other people. So going from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, uh, applying it to our own lives, and then helping other people to become a disciple-maker. Well, studying Scripture is essential, uh, and you, you always do that. You're always studying the Bible in the many different ways that we can study the Bible, but you do have to step out and apply it first personally to your own life, Uh, but then also into other people's lives. And so that is getting your reps in. Uh, It is ongoing repetition. It is very similar to virtually anything uh, that takes time to learn to do. You do it over and over and over again. If you want to be a pianist, well, you have to play the piano every day. Uh, You need a mentor to help you to play the piano. You need to study to learn how to play the piano, but you also have to hit those ivories Uh, regularly, one or two hours a day, over a period of years, and you can be uh, possibly an outstanding pianist. And so getting your reps in is essential. So studying scripture, personal application to yourself, having a mentor would be essential, uh, but then you just have to step out and do it, uh, because without the doing of it, you can grow intellectually, but not grow in your orthopraxy, because you're not applying it. And so and that's usually the hard part. Uh, It's easy to study the Bible or easier to study the Bible than to actually apply it in someone's life. By the way, that is what we do here at Life Over Coffee. We are more on the application side uh, of sanctification, and so applying our theology in our lives and teaching other people how to do it as well. That's one of the purposes of the Mastermind program, is to teach people how to apply God's Word in other people's lives. But getting your reps in, you got to step out of the boat and learn to walk on water, and just recognize that Christ will be there to help you each time that you sink. Number 10, what tools would you recommend, apart from the Bible, uh, for the new believer? I would recommend a systematic theology book. uh, That would be essential. Uh, ST uh, is the abbreviation, and ST goes through the entire corpus of theology from theology of God proper uh, to Bibliology, the study of the Bible, uh, all the way to Eschatology. You'll see the, the Logos word at the end of each one of those, um, Theology, Theos, Logos, the study of God. Bibliology uh, is the study of the Bible eschatology is the study of end times, Uh, but going through a systematic theology book. And I do recommend that you take advantage of our resources here at Life Over Coffee because they're free. We have several uh, digital downloads in our store, for example. We have thousands of articles, podcasts, and videos, and all of them are about applying the Bible in your life. And so I would encourage lifeovercoffee.com. I mean, it is what we do. If you ask me how to play basketball, I would not recommend our, our uh, ministry at all. But since you're asking what tools would you recommend, I would recommend this free resource at lifeovercoffee.com. But an ST book would be a good starting place as well. Number 11, is biblical counseling or discipleship only meant to be led by elders and pastors? What benefit is it for the congregation to be well equipped? Uh, it, Christianity is a full participation sport, meaning. Everyone should be playing. Everyone should be participating. Going and making disciples is not just for a certain group of Christians. In fact, it is the pastors, the leaders, it's their responsibility, according to Ephesians 4, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so doing biblical counseling, or what I prefer, I prefer the word discipleship, uh, it's meant for everyone. Now, of course, the leadership of the church should set the should set the leadership. That's what pastors do. They they lead, but they're not the only ones that are doing the work of biblical counseling. In fact, I recommend that pastors, like say the lead teaching pastor, uh, and other pastors, that they do not do the work of biblical counseling exclusively, because if they do, uh, they might find themselves talking to five church members or five couples or five families that need biblical counseling and they will not be able to shepherd the flock. And so the entire flock needs to come along and and supplement and help the leaders so that the shepherds can actually do all the work of the ministry and not just a specific facet of it, biblical counseling. And so everybody should be doing their part according to their capacity. Obviously, there's going to be skill levels, some can do it better than others, but everybody Anybody can do life over coffee. Anyone can talk. Any Christian should be able to talk to someone else about their problems, and you may find that this problem, this person that you're talking to, is a grade level higher than where you are at this point. That's fine. You can hand them off. You can uh, let someone else know who has more competency uh, than you do, but again, everybody should be participating. Number 12. What do you do in close relationship with an unbeliever when their idolatry is so pervasive that it handicaps your ability to encourage or express gratitude for fear they will use it to affirm, to rationalize, and justify their harmful behavior? Let me restate again that all of these questions are at episode 481. is titled Rick and Lucia Answering Your Questions because this is a Uh, It's a wordy and and big question that has a couple twists and turns to it. And so what do you do with a close relationship with an unbeliever? One of the things I would just ask you to be guarded about is having a close relationship with an unbeliever. Because what you're talking about is light and darkness, oil and water, uh, truth and lies. Uh, "Our father is God, the Father, their father is Satan. and so you're mixing things that aren't mixable, is my point. And so you want to be careful in those relationships that you're bringing you can bring them too close uh, into your uh, spheres of intimacy. Now of course, if you're married to an unbeliever, I realize that is a certain level of complexity. and so you don't want to diss them. But again, you do have to have precautions because one, as Paul said in Corinthians 2.14, that the, the unbeliever doesn't even understand the things of the, uh, uh, of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. And so you're speaking in an unknown tongue. And so there are those complexities there because you're living in two different worlds. But if it brings you uh, to a place, uh, if it's so pervasive that it handicaps your ability to encourage well, uh, maybe uh, you, you need to do something else other than trying to encourage or express gratitude. You don't have to be mean to them, snarky. You can appreciate them and, and encourage them in, in ways that you need to uh, or that is appropriate. Uh, but also, there, there may be some level of confrontation that needs to happen as well. And so I would think more... Uh, evangelistically, uh, because again, you're living in two worlds here, and so you can't think like a Christian and act like a Christian uh, with someone who doesn't think like a Christian and act like a Christian. All right, so Lucia, uh, number 13, uh, when correcting children, do you ensure they just don't move their wrong responses to just outside of your hearing. So you correct one of our three children. Our children are much older now, but when they were younger, when you corrected them, uh, how did you ensure that, well, they're just going to go out to the cul-de-sac and keep doing what they're doing outside of eye, sh- eye, eye, uh, eye Earshot. Line. Earshot. I was going to say <laughs> eye-line. I shot an earline.
1: Well, first off, can you insure anything with children and you can't. So you and and if you are trying to insure it, are you just trying to get children's behavior to be what you want it to be? And if you're working on just getting behavior, then they probably will be taking it out away from you and doing what their heart is really controlling them, especially if they're young and they're not unbelievers, or even if they're old and they're not believers because they're not going to have the spirit of God inside of them helping to change them. So I would be really careful about trying to ensure any type of behavior and work on having conversations about what the ruling motive of their heart is so that you can get down to why are you responding this way if you're rolling your eyes or if you're huffing or if you're stomping off or if you're hitting a sibling or you know if you're just saying disrespectful words all of that is coming out of something so you know what is the anger that's below there that's you know raging inside of them and a lot of times kids don't know They need their parents to help walk them through to say, hey, what's up with this behavior? Why are you being angry? And if they're like, I'm not angry, you know, but you're like, yes, this is anger. So where is it coming from? Help them to see like, are you not getting your way? Is something not happening the way you want to? Well, living in community, we can't always get our own way. We're living with other people and there has to be give and take there. So helping walk them through what that looks like And realizing that there'll be sometimes that, you know, you'll be able to do what the child wants, you know, like if it's going to the park or the pool and other times it'll be, no, we have to, you know, get dinner ready or we have to do chores around the house and working through whatever's raging inside their heart, whether that's disappointment or, you know, they had an expectation or they feel like we weren't keeping our word as parents, but helping them walk through and to be able to verbalize that so that you know what they're struggling with. And how to help them. Sometimes it can be that we just haven't communicated well as parents, and there might be sin in there, and we can repent to our child and give them a good perspective about what it looks like to actually walk through repentance and restore that relationship. And the more that they see that modeled, the easier it's going to be for them to do it. And hopefully the spirit of God will, you know, if they're not believers, quicken their hearts and draw them to himself and save them. You know, once they are believers then you have the spirit on your side and you can be working through that to help them see just that whole part of growing up and not what to do with emotions and feelings and situations that they just they haven't ever experienced. And we've always wanted our kids to be able to go through that and struggle when they're at home with us because we can have conversations with them about it and work through it before they get to the place where they have to leave the house and either aren't working through it, don't know how to, or, you know, you don't want any of them just to stuff it inside and to to do a performance behavior because then that's just gonna tie them up in knots, not knowing you know, not having the freedom of forgiveness.
0: All right. uh, Next question, number 14. This will be for you as well. Lucia, how do you correct your husband or do you?
1: And you mentioned that earlier with a lot of time, it looks like silence just because you would prefer to get into the verbal exchange where I, I think hurtful words aren't helpful. So, you know, there's a lot, there can be silence in there, but there's also that part of, as Rick mentioned, the spirit working on him. It gives me a chance to look at my own part of, you know, what part did I have to play when, in this and go into um, repentance and do that. So, you know, correction can look a lot of different ways. And a lot of times that looks like having discussions after the arguments resolved um, and repentance has been given on both sides to go back and just have a discussion about what was going on what was happening what you know circumstances were around there how can we change it so that we we either shorten that time next time it comes around or you know resolve it all together
0: that's a really good point i haven't thought about it exactly like that but that that is true and so The question is how do you correct your husband or do you? And so there's correction on the front end, there's correction on the back end, and so you correct me through your sanctified silent treatment or you correct me through words uh, and then I come to a place of repentance and so now whatever my sin is, it's been neutralized by the power of the gospel and so it's not animated, it's not gonna, I mean if there has been true forgiveness then it's dead. And so it's not going to animate and start walking around the room again. So, so, so now it's roadkill. And so now there's correction on the other side of it where we can talk civilly at this point. And you should be able to talk civilly uh, if repentance, if forgiveness is legit. If forgiveness is legit on the other side of the sin event, there should be correction. And so then you can talk And now it's easier for you to talk because I'm not sending my brains out. Yeah. And if
1: you notice when you go back to have that conversation that all of a sudden there's anger again, then you know, okay, we need to circle back around and actually talk through and say, what is it down there that's underlying this that's causing the anger and how can we get to, to resolve that?
0: Yeah. So correction can be on the front end of the sin event and then on the back end of the sin event. And it really has to be on the back end for sure because she doesn't want a repeat offender uh she's actually has a vested interest in having this conversation afterwards so that a uh, doofus over here doesn't keep doing the same thing over and over again which ties to a previous question that we can be discouraged if these recurring sin patterns uh which they do
1: and yeah it goes both ways we want to have the the conversation both sides because you don't want me repenting my sin patterns either
0: yeah, so the correction on the front end could be a little more tedious and, and, and maybe inhibiting uh, because your husband's sinning. But then if there's true uh, con- uh, conviction, confession, forgiveness, then I'm back to my right mind. Now that corrective conversation is, is more civil and it's better. But having it on both ends, both ends of the uh, sin event is important. What is your advice on confronting someone who is always willing to confront or correct but doesn't balance it with much, if any, encouragement? Uh, We have a rule of thumb. It's not legalistic, so I don't want you to hear that, uh, but it's just a rule of thumb to help us to think what this question is, is communicating, is that for every correction that you give someone, every admonition that you give someone, that there are 10 encouragements that have already happened. Now, again, that's not a legalistic, that's not a formula to where you're keeping tick marks on a whiteboard, uh, but it is an idea because what you want to do is you want to put money in the bank so that when you make that corrective withdrawal, uh, you're not deflating them or they're not, you're not bankrupting them because you haven't put anything in in the bank. And so that is the idea but the question is what is your advice on confronting someone who is always willing to take money out of the bank they're always willing to confront and correct but they don't balance it with much of any encouragement what would you say uh, lucia to uh, a couple probably a wife i would imagine who i mean husbands would ask the same question as well uh with with a wife that's confronting we call them nags uh but a lot of times we hear this from men uh, from women wives who uh, their husbands are corrective and confrontive but they're not really good on the encouragement side
1: well and it's like a lot of things in marriage it has to do with communication they may not be aware of it they may think that their confrontive words are actually encouraging <laughs> you to be better
0: I am (laughs) motivating you. Can you hear me? So
1: part of that is to say, you know, when you, when you speak in this tone, this is how I feel. And it, you know, right or wrong, if you're, if you're not being able to receive the words to the tone of voice, you need to let the other spouse know that they may not be aware of it. They, they may not know that it's coming through and, you know, shutting you down or making you withdraw, you know, and then, um, you know, or these words, you know, are not motivating, motivating me to help me want to be the better, better. When you correct me in this way, I feel very discouraged. I feel very overwhelmed. And, you know, once you get through that part of conversation of saying, you know, this isn't, helping me to, you know, press more into Jesus. How can we do to change this? It just gets through either that unawareness or, okay, let me try better. Or, you know, what helps there? And again, it's not just saying fluffy words of like, yes, you're great. And you're wonderful. And all that there, there might just be a way of it's just being misinterpreted. So it helps to clear up and have that conversation to, to get the understanding there. And then, you know, another side of that is also to realize is that we can't be putting all of our hope and worth into our spouse. We can't be looking at them for our, you know, self-worth or our establishment or all that. We need to be getting that from Christ. We need to know that we're children of God and we're saved. And whenever the spouse is, whether it's angry or discouraging, you know we can still look to our savior and know that we're secure and complete in him and then continue to take that basis and that solidness and then go on have these conversations again and by god's grace he'll continue to change the other person where the 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 behavior or the words or the anger the confrontations all that will end up changing
0: this is episode 481 if you want to read the full list of questions here episode forty one, Rick and Lucia answering your questions. You can find that at lifeovercoffee.com. Uh, and so the, the, the question uh, number 16, uh, how long can a professing Christian live as a functional atheist uh, before you question whether they have been truly born again? Uh, I, I don't know. And so a functional atheist is is a, let's say, a Christian, but not acting like a Christian. So functionally, they're acting like a non-Christian or an atheist, is the the term that the questioner is using here. So how long can a professing Christian live as a functional atheist before you question whether they're truly born again? Again, I I don't know. Uh, I rarely question if someone is born again because I just don't know. It's, It's such a subjective thing. All of us have testimonies of people that have been in church or maybe national public figures who really just presented as Christians, and then you find out something that just seems to be so out of sync with what a Christian is. And then there's the other where you see people that, well, they don't look like a Christian, whatever that means. And and But as you get to know them, it seems like they are, and it's just really a subjective thing. And there could be so many uh, complexities that are involved with why a person is is caught and uh, they're acting a sinful way. And so what I want to do, rather than thinking about whether they're born again or not, just like this is who the person is, this is how they are, what does that mean according to what I am observing? How can I be Christ to this person according to all the data that I have about this person? But going to the point of of questioning where they've been born again, uh, I would be very careful about doing that. I would just think more about how can I uh, be Christ to them. Now, maybe you're thinking more evangelistically because you're unsure if they're born again, or you're thinking more about disciple-making because they may be born again. Uh, I would just think about where they are and be Christ to them according to the data that uh, or the observations that I've made about them. Uh, Lucia, number 17, please restate your instruction on the significance of who is the biggest sinner.
1: And that comes right down to realizing where you stand before Christ. So when you look at Christ and yourself and realize I put Christ on the cross, then anybody else in the room, it doesn't matter what they've done. You are the biggest sinner. You're, you're the one that put him on the cross. And, and that's where I have to start anytime there's argument, heat, friction in any area of my life is to realize where I am in front of Christ. So realizing that I'm the biggest sinner really helps me in an approach, especially with Rick to go through and say, okay, as you know, a spouse, here's where I stand before Christ, everything else, you know, my biggest problem has been taken care of. So whatever conflict we're having, you know, pales in comparison
0: all right two more and there these are yours as well uh, what was the most difficult challenge as a wife as a mother while being thankful in all things what in your life do you feel most blessed by so that's a three-part question there
1: there's a lot of yet yeah, um difficult challenges probably taking the wife part first was just not having seen my parents ever disagree with each other in front of me or my siblings so when i got married i was marrying prince charming and we were going off to the and, castle and,
0: and never disagreed on anything <laughs>
1: and we were going to live happily ever after and you know and then conflict arises and it's like whoa wait where did this come from and what's up with that tone of voice and why are you yelling at me and you know so there was a lot of that was uh, a difficult challenge to go through and we had the conversation later on about knowing that there's two sinners in a box in any marriage And not having a proper perspective, like I mentioned about, you know, me having put Christ on the cross, it was um, definitely a challenge to work through that and realize that Rick wasn't necessarily yelling at me. His family just spoke in different tones and different ways than my family did. And as husband and wife, trying to put that in context to know that my parents had those conversations It just wasn't in front of us and then how to learn how to do that with Rick. Uh, so that was definitely a challenge. As a mother, it's probably just always wanting the best for your kids, but not wanting them to have to go through pain or struggle or kind of what that mentioned before about when the kid's going out to the cul-de-sac. You know, there's other stuff in their lives that are going on and that they're struggling with, but I can't take that away. It's part of the path that God has them on. It's part of the plan for them, and they're going to have to work through that and make adjustments. So I would want to be part of that and help lead them into a, you know, good relationship with Christ. And as much as a mother, I don't want them to hurt. I have to realize that it's going to be for their, for their good and the story that God has for them. Um, last part was,
0: While being thankful Thankful. and not oh, being
1: blessed by well, even being a mother because for a long time, well, even getting married later in life, I didn't know that I was going to get married. So there's blessing of that, and then we had several miscarriages. So just even having the children uh, was a huge blessing that I didn't know that I'd be able to
0: enjoy. All right, this is brief and amazing time here. We're at the end. And um, number 19, what was your life experience before meeting and marrying Rick? What would your advice be to a young woman who has remained pure and hasn't been previously married but is dating someone who has been? Wow. Do you have any life advice or tips that helped you in your relationship before and marriage to Rick? That's a lot there mm-hmm. in just a couple of minutes. Yeah,
1: So life experience before Rick, um, got a college degree and then started working with a construction firm in town, was able to do a lot of temp work before I was hired full time. So I got to see a lot of different areas of, you know, life and around the construction company, but this basically had a lot of skills with people with making travel arrangements with working with um, projects that had deadlines and multiple passes. So that was just God's way of preparing me for what we're both doing now Um, and then on the dating front for any, anyone who's, whether it's the person's been married or not on any part of that is just to really set up boundaries and have people involved in your lives because temptation's always creeping at the door. So you want to make practical things like, you know, always having a third person around, not meeting in private, you know, having other couples and singles involved in your life where it's not just all about you as a couple, but you're pressing into the local body and creating a context to have relationships that are going to help you through some of the rough parts ahead um, with marriage um, and any, well, tips. Yeah. Even root to that part about before I met him, you know, it's just being circumspect and having people involved in your life and working through that because you just want to, you want to have others around.
0: Yeah. And you had to wrestle through, uh, me having two, uh, children that you could have, um, been a, an Insta mom, you know, at that mm-hmm. moment. I mean. Uh, marrying someone who's been married before someone who's married before and has children i mean that is is something that you have to wrestle through
1: you do yeah and you have to you know weigh the pros and cons and you know take a look at am i at this place do i have the faith to walk forward in this because you have to have that faith in knowing god's going to help you through it before you even step into it because the rough times are going to come and you need to be able to look back and say no i stepped out in faith
0: This is episode 481. If you want to read these questions, you're welcome to do that. You can go to lifeovercoffee.com. There's the podcast, the video as well. If you have questions for us, especially for Lucia, uh, but we would love to do another one of these episodes. And so if we get a list of questions, we had 19 of them here. They were very good. I trust you have benefited from them. But please let us know. Go to lifeovercoffee.com. Scroll to the bottom of the website, any page of the website. It says get in touch. And all you have to do is click and uh, the button and then you can... Uh, you can record your question, or you can uh, just write it, and that would be fine. We would love to collect them, and then maybe at some future broadcast, uh, we would do those. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at LifeOverCoffee.com.